And I want to start with a question, and that is, has God ever spoken to you? Now, if you're a Christian, I hope the answer is yes, because you know that God speaks through his word, that the scriptures are his direct words, not only to the original hearers, but to us, his people. It's living and active, the scriptures tell us, that as we read it, he speaks into our lives. But sometimes we may feel, um, may feel that we experience his speaking in a more personal in an tangible and directive way in our lives. Maybe we're, we're reading the scriptures or, or we're praying or listening to a sermon and we have this sense that God is almost whispering in our ear. The words are, are just, they seem like they're just directly to our situation that's going on in our life right then. And we feel either really convicted or, or really cur- encouraged or really challenged. Sometimes I have people come up after a sermon and say, were you like spying on me this week? That was just right at me. And I'm like, yes, I was. No, I'm, I'm like, no. That was the Lord speaking. Sometimes people tell me how God has spoken uh, through words of a friend or circumstances in a very powerful way in their life. I've even talked to people and heard testimonies of people who have had God speak to them in in a vision or a a dream. I've I've not had that experience. I think that's a rare experience, but it could happen, and it it does. It happens in the Bible, doesn't it? But I have to say, I've yet to meet a person who's heard God speak to them in such a tangible and direct way that it shook the ground around them like thunder, and everyone around them heard it and recognized it as divine. You know, they were just standing there in a park, and suddenly this voice shook the trees, and the birds flew away, and everybody looked, and it said, Carrie! I don't know what it said, but let's just say it spoke. Or you're at an intersection, and everybody stops their cars because they hear this voice that's telling you to go. It's green. Um, And you know why I've never met someone who's experienced such a moment? Because it just doesn't happen very often. It's pretty rare. Even in the Bible, it's rare. I can think of only a few instances in the Bible. I can think of Mount Sinai. Just prior to the giving of the law, God's voice literally thundered from the heavens and shook the mountain. I can think of Jesus' baptism as the Spirit descended on him and God's voice came from heaven, identifying him as his beloved son. And all who were there heard it. I can think of the transfiguration when the disciples were having a hard time listening to Jesus and God said from heaven with with the witness of Moses and Elijah, this is my son, listen to him. All very significant moments marked by God's clear, powerful voice of approval, kind of booming from heaven, basically saying, hear this, don't miss this truth. And in today's text, we have one of these rare moments. In verse 28, God's voice booms from heaven like thunder. And everybody hears it. 
Although some think it's, it's an angel. And what does he say? What is this earth-shaking message that must not be missed? Well, in verse 27, we get a little of the context before we actually read it. Jesus is, is contemplating his death. He says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. That, that's the hour of his death across. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Jesus here is deeply troubled. The idea behind the Greek word is, is angered and, and revulsed. Jesus knew at every level, with every fiber of his being, the pain and suffering that he was about to enter into at the cross. And I'm not just talking about the physical torture, but the spiritual agony that was before him. But he is stoic and determined. He knew in his spirit, he knew, excuse me, in spite of all the, the pain before him, that this was his very purpose. This hour, the cross, was the very reason he came. And he cried out as he contemplated the cross, Father, glorify your name. And at that very moment, God spoke from heaven. Verse 28, then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. He had glorified Jesus already. Probably, I think maybe he's talking about the incarnation when the angels sang from heaven. But he said, and I'm going to glorify it again, ultimately at the cross, at his crucifixion. The Father wants everyone to know what's going to happen is going to be glorious. This horrible moment of crucifixion that is only days away will be a moment of glory for Jesus and his Father. And Jesus said to his disciples, in, in kind of the echo of that divine boom, that was for you. I love that he says that. I knew it, but it's for you. My friends, why would they need to hear that? Why would they need those words at this time? Well, because I think it's going to be very, very hard to believe. In just a few days, as they stand looking up at their king, the one they had been waving palm branches for in Zionistic expectation to save them, as they look at him lifted up on a cross, hanging naked and bloody, struggling to breathe and dying. Everything in them is going to say, defeat. It's over. This is what the Romans do to defeated armies. They take their king and they crucify him before him to show him, you guys need to hang your heads and go home. It's over. It's done. And so kind of like a, a preemptive strike of grace to steady them for that moment, he's let them know. It'll be for my glory, for Christ's glory. I'm telling you, what's a, what you're about to see will be glorious. I can't help but wonder 
if they remembered that in those days following the cross before the resurrection when they were hiding and trembling in fear, if they were holding on, what, where's the glory? But of course the question is how? Yes, as believers, we kind of agree, we kind of sing about it, right? The cross is, is, of Christ displays God's glory, amen. We display crosses gloriously. But how does it actually do that? What do we mean? What did the Father mean? Now, the obvious answer that my mind wants to run to right away is just kind of skip across, go, well, he's going to resurrect, and then, you know, there'll be glory. And that's true. But Jesus doesn't go directly there. Instead, in verse 31 and 32, he kind of gives this little theology of the cross, how this is going to be glorious, a concise theology. And he kind of puts it in two ways. And the first is judgment. Look at verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. The hour for the Son of Man to be lifted up on the cross has come. The time for him to be crucified has come. And Jesus says, now is the judgment of the world and its ruler. Think about that. He's kind of just turned it all on its head. You see, the very moment that the world thinks that it's judging Jesus, that it's meeting out its judgment in, uh, in this public execution, Jesus is actually saying, no, just the opposite is happening. Jesus is judging the world and Satan, its ruler. Think about that. If I were to ask you, we hadn't been in on this sermon, I just came up to you downstairs or something, and I said, Hey, when is the moment that Satan, the ruler of this world, and all his camp, kind of this world, will be judged? Or are going to be judged? Your mind, like mine, would probably go fast forward. Right? You would go to the return of Jesus, to the, to the final judgment, when, all, when, he, when he will come to judge the living and the dead. I know that's where my mind goes. But we need to understand that that day is only the end of a battle started and really decided at the cross. The day of judgment is the cross till the end. In a sense, the future judgment is only the full revelation and consequence of the battle won at the cross. You see, in every contest... In every battle, there is a decisive moment of victory, isn't there? When the tide turns and you know who's won, you know it's over. Even though it may go on for a little while, you know it's over. This is why sporting events, people often, you know, start heading for the parking lot. When there's, you know, God, there's like 10 minutes left. Golly, like, there's another, why are they leaving? Well, it's because, you know, that other team just scored their third touchdown. They went up by 27, and everybody's like, I got to be the first one out of here. Because it's over. It's done. The decisive moment has happened. The cross 
was the decisive moment in God's judgment. As Jesus laid down his life on the cross in our place, taking our sins upon him, absorbing our punishment from God, God's, all God's wrath, all God's hell, he took it. And you know what happened? The Apostle Paul tells us in Colossians 2.15 that Satan and the rulers of this world were disarmed. And I want to read, I want to read that section. This is Colossians 2, verse 15. Let me just find it here. Here it is. I'll start at verse 13 to give you the context. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us and its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You see, my friends, all Satan has against us is our sin. He's the accuser. He holds up our sin to remind God, our holy God, that we must be cast from his presence into Satan's realm, into darkness, because God is pure and holy. can't even look on sin. This is Satan's tactic. This is his tactic. This is his only weapon, our sin and guilt and the justice of God. But at the cross... He was disarmed as Jesus took our sin on himself and paid the price, canceling our debt and washed us clean. My friends, when you disarm your enemy, he can mock, he can shout, he can talk big all he wants. But the fact is, it's over. You can end it any time. You can finish him off. It is over over that's why Jesus says it's finished on the cross the Bible tells us that the only reason God extends this time and stretches in a sense the end of that battle out that final conclusion of judgment is he wishes to bring mercy and he's waiting, waiting patiently that all should repent he's stretching out the end that people can repent. People will come and receive the gift of forgiveness and join in the victory. Now this is indeed glorious, isn't it? The cross is that judging moment of victory. And a moment of victory is always ultimately a moment of great glory. Great celebration. I always think of the, the old clips you see of the soldiers coming back from you know, the world wars and the ticker tape parades in, in, in New York where they're just celebrating with all they got. People, everybody's out on the street. They're throwing all the papers flying out of the buildings. They're just casting all the glory they can because our enemy's been defeated. We're saved. And my friends... 
That's been the heart response of every true forgiven believer ever since the cross. Praising God, not only with our voice, but with our thankful lives. That's why we're here today. It's why we sing praise every Sunday. And it's going to come to its full culmination when we someday join him with everybody, every tribe and tongue, and praise him with one voice. But note that this cross-judgment moment will also promote God's glory negatively, in a sense, by, by what it negates, by what it puts down. Jesus doesn't just pay for our sin and exalt his followers upward, having released us from the bonds of Satan of this world, and he simultaneously puts down his enemies. The ruler of this world and this world will be cast out. You see, ultimately, all who oppose God, all who continue in their rebellion against God, all who mock him and speak against him, all who pursue their own praise and glory and ignore the God who made them and died for them, all will be silenced. The rebel will be silenced. The mocker will be silenced. The hardened atheist will be silenced. Heaven will be a beautiful, pure place, holy, cleansed through judgment. And all that are washed in the blood of Jesus will be at peace, celebrating together because all evil and sin are gone. It's just not there. A friend of mine once recounted how she was walking with a non-Christian friend of hers, and they were talking, and this friend was an atheist and always had been an atheist, and, and so she was talking about heaven, and that atheist friend kind of realized that she didn't think that she was going to be there. And she got kind of offended, which is kind of strange because she's an atheist, right? And she said to her friend, oh, yeah, I guess I don't. I mean, I, I don't think you're going to be there, but you do realize that heaven is a place where People glorify Jesus for eternity, sing praises and glorify him with their lives. Is, is that what you want to do? Absolutely not. She said, well, you, you won't be there. Heaven will not be a mixed crowd. There will be no jeering or booing amongst the crowd. There will only be one song sung by all. Revelation 19.1, Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. Now that is the, the first way that Jesus tells us that the cross will promote his glory. It will promote it in judgment. But there's a second way that we see there in verse 32. He says this, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Jesus' cross work is not only going to promote God's glory in, in judging the world, but in drawing, in drawing in all people to himself. Drawing in his people. Now there are kind of two aspects to this. 
to how the cross will be the place of drawing people in. And the first is, is access. Or, an, or at, at Jesus creates, in a sense, an open way. We see this in the words, note how it says, and when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. First read that, it sounds a little bit like universalism, like, you know, hey, to the cross, everybody's going to be saved. But that's not the case. We know that in one sense from the rest of the Bible. We know it from the context here. Jesus, is, what he's really saying is that he's going to open a way for everybody. See, last week in verse 23, we saw Jesus decide it was time to go to the cross. When? When did he decide it was time to go to the cross? Look back at verse uh, 20. We'll start at verse 20 of, of chapter 12 here. This is what he said. Now, those among, now among those who went up to the worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. You see, this is the first time that we hear that the Greeks, yet the Jews and the Greeks, that the, the rest of the world, in a sense, is coming and wanting to see Jesus. And Jesus says, it's time. It's time to go to the cross. My hour has come. Because he knows that the cross, at the cross, he will pay for all sin, for all people, for all time. And thus he opened the door of salvation beyond ethnicity, beyond religious stuff, beyond heritage, not indiscriminately, but to those who will respond in faith, all who will come. Back in chapter 11, he said this to, to Martha, didn't he? In verse 23, after the raising of Lazarus, Jesus said, uh, let's see here, verse, uh, verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? At the cross, Jesus does all the work for all the people, opening the door for all who will put their trust in him. That's what he does. His life was big enough to pay for everybody. See how this kind of throws the, the glory door wide open? Of course the cross is going to ultimately promote the glory of the Father and Jesus because it opens the door for more and more glorifiers, all praisers of his name, all believers to enter in. The cross is the very means to that end in heaven that we see pictured in the book of Revelation where people from every tribe and every language and every nation are praising and glorifying God together. But I want you to note that this drawing, this drawing in, is not just passive access. It's not just 
by you know, opening a door wider. It's also very active. He's not just going to open the door via the cross. Jesus is, is going to pull people through it. The Greek word translated draw here, it's a very interesting word. It's used in chapter 21 where they're dragging in the heavy nets of fish. It's used of Paul and Silas being dragged before the authorities. It generally implies some kind of resistance, but you're being pulled. In John 6.44 where we're told that no one comes to the Father lest he draw them. And here we find that the cross is the very means that he uses to do that. God pulls in his people via the glorious cross. This, I think, is why the Apostle Paul resolved in Corinth to preach nothing but Christ and him crucified and called it the power of God. This is why Peter at Pentecost finished his sermon with the words, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And they were cut to the heart. And 3,000 souls were drawn in that day. And you know, if you're a Christian today, you know this draw. You know this draw in your life. Sometime in your life, you were struck to the heart by Christ's work on the cross and you were drawn in. Some of you remember that moment. I remember when Mick Draper, some of you know Mick Draper, was sitting right out here and Rico Tice, a minister from England, was preaching up here and he was talking about the work of Christ on the cross and he said, picture a giant magnifying glass in the sky that's beaming and beaming through it as all the sins of all the world for all time, and it's beaming that little ray of all the heat of the sin of the universe down on the cross on Christ as he takes all the judgment. And Mick Draper was struck. She was saved that day. She was drawn in. Jeff Williams, who's sitting right up here, told me when I first met him about how he had no interest in Christ, and Christ drew him in, just pulled him in, and he was saved. I could go on with stories from you guys about when we look back on what Christ has done. See, the cross is indeed glorious. It's God's victorious judgment over all who oppose him, even Satan, and it's the very means by which he opens the door and draws his people in to be saved and praise him forever. So, how should we respond? Well, those listening at this time, these original audience here, we're told uh, kind of in verse 35 and 36 that they didn't understand, you know, how the Christ, how, how the Son of Man could, could die. He was supposed to go on forever. They just, in their framework, they couldn't get their mind around it. But interestingly, Jesus doesn't address that. He just says this to them. This is his response to this crowd that's going, What? Verse 35, so Jesus said to him, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, 
that you may become sons of light. He simply calls them to, to believe. To walk in the light of the truth that he's exposing right before them. To trust him about the cross, the glorious victory. To step out of the darkness of this world and into the light of his life. If you're not a believer this morning, this is a call. This is a call from Jesus on your life to come to his cross. Jesus is calling you to come through the door he has opened to heaven by trusting in his work on the cross for you. His death, his taking the punishment for your sins, his enduring the wrath of God for you, his forgiveness and new life. He wants you to receive it, to share in his victory, to step into the light, into his life. Note the urgency. He says, the light is with you for a little while longer. You know, because he's about to go to the cross. He's speaking to those with him. He says, walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. While you have the light, believe in the light. They have this opportunity where Christ is right in front of them. They can see and hear him clearly. They can feel his call and they need to respond before they lose the moment in a sense. For the darkness is on them again and they can't see. It makes me think of those, uh, those moments in life that we talked about at the start of the sermon, those times when we feel like we're really hearing God speaking to us in a direct, almost palpable way. His spirit is, is drawing us, it's convicting us. Those moments of light, of clarity, when we kind of see it. He says, don't resist. Don't let the darkness overtake you until it's too late. It's an urgent call. Come to the glorious cross of Christ. And if you're a Christian this morning, the challenge is to live a glorious cross life, isn't it? To live a life that glorifies God by living out the implications of the cross, of the glorious cross every day. Do we live like the cross was and is indeed victorious, the victorious judgment over evil and sin? Do we live like we know how things turn out because of the cross? With all God's people singing praises and his enemies destroyed because of what was accomplished at the cross Sometimes I think we live kind of like a, a Star Wars kind of thing where there's kind of this dualism between God and Satan and this kind of anxiety whether Darth Vader's going to win. No, it's over. It's finished. The victory is sure. That's the joy of our salvation. In the toughest of times, that should sustain us, should give us confidence and joy. We can glorify God in all circumstances. And do we live like the cross is the draw of God? 
Do we live like the cross is the very means that God uses to, to draw his people to him to save them? Do we live like this in our conversations? Do we live like this in our actions? And I want to apply this to us as a church as well because it's easy to lose our nerve as a church when it comes to preaching the cross. Whole denominations are giving up on the cross, on the message of Christ's life crucified for our sinful life as the only way to God. It's People don't like that. It's so negative. Crucifixion. And it's not that these churches aren't drawing people in and growing on Sunday. I mean, you can grow a crowd with cool Christ, with Christ the rebel, with Christ the therapist, Jesus the blesser, Christ the comforter, Jesus our friend. All probably true in some sense. But people can only be drawn into true relationship with God through the message of Christ and him crucified. Not as an example, but as an atonement. The cross is the place of God's glory in judgment and salvation, and we need to live accordingly. Do my words and actions say, I follow a crucified king, and it's my joy? Let's pray. Father, we are so blessed that we sit in the light of your word. That in a way we get to see this through the exposure of your word and have an understanding and a clarity that the original audience couldn't even see. Lord, may we let your light lead us to your life. May we come to your cross. Amen.